Secure IT, where we discuss all things cybersecurity, trends, people, and products. So thank you for joining us on our continuing journey. And uh, we're going to take a little twist here. This is the moment in the long journey of podcasts where we see something uh, very attractive. And uh, this is going to be purely intellectual stimulus. Uh, we've often talked about governance, regulation, and compliance. And boy, have we reached the top of the mountain today. The reputation of our guest precedes him not only in the security world, world, he's a prolific author, a ready reckoner of sorts in entertainment law, and an intellectual, literally. Uh, for those of you who see the video version of this, you'll notice the background uh, uh, of books. Currently, professor of law, director of intellectual property, cybersecurity, and technology law at Nova South. Eastern. Um, he's written 50 books, over 200 presentations, uh, Juris Doctor degree from Columbia. And uh, in honor of him, I've uh, got the appropriate uh, wardrobe change. Uh, welcome. I'm not sure to, as I should refer to you as Esquire, Professor John Garrett. Thank you very much for having me. And John is fine. Thank you. Uh, so as we usually do, John, um, I'm excited. It's uh, a Thursday morning here in Southern California, and I'm ready for some mental stimulus. So uh, for those of us who are listening and, and our audience often hang on to every word in terms of following careers of our guests and one day wanting to be like them. So I, I very briefly and intentionally kept it brief because I wanted you to talk to this. Uh, talk, to your, talk to us about your background, your career, uh, and as I typically say, the various choices that got you here with some special emphasis on the books and the publications and the legacy that you have created in this space. Well, thank you. And first of all, let me thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I have a very uh, uh, nonlinear uh, uh, path to where I am today. <clears throat> I started out uh, as an undergrad at uh, University of Minnesota, and my interest was in uh, the field of live theater as well as psychology. And so I got a dual. I got two degrees, uh, one in theater and one in psychology. Uh, decided to go to law school um, because uh, it was uh, too dangerous to simply pursue an MFA. So I went to Columbia Law School because it had a partnership with the Hammerstein Center for the Performing Arts, and so I was able to do both uh, theatrical work as well as legal work. And while I was there, I was also involved with the Columbia Film School taking classes there as well. And so that really created the opportunity for me to learn the business as well as the uh, legal aspect. Went out to California, went to Los Angeles and started out my career as an entertainment lawyer. Now, this is the early 90s. And as I started to practice entertainment law uh, in the very early 90s, uh, some of my clients began to uh, discover uh, this newly commercialized internet. Um, one of my clients came to me and said, have you heard about this webby thing? Um, and that representation led to one of the first commercial sports sites uh, on the internet. And because I was representing companies who were early adopters of the technology, I had to immerse myself in what they were doing as well. 
that led to work involving top-level domain uh, uh, structures and representing companies who were circumventing top-level domains. It led to work in the privacy space involving uh, GLBA, HIPAA, and the like. Um, and at the same time that I was doing, uh, continuing to do entertainment work and increasing amount of technology work, I also moved from being a full-time attorney to a part-time attorney and full-time law professor. Um, my first book then became a book that was the lessons that I learned representing independent film clients. And I wrote my book on independent filmmaking. That led to additional books on entrepreneurship and then the marriage of entrepreneurship with technology. And so my most recent book, which you kind of see over my shoulder, is Parenting for the Digital Generation, dealing with privacy, cybersecurity, technology in the home and educational environment. And I wrote that just as we were moving into uh, the uh, lockdown as a result of the pandemic. So it was very timely to be able to help uh, families and educators understand how to deal with all the technological issues and really try to bring some of the rules of cybersecurity and privacy into the home so that these became best practices, not only for corporate executives, but also every day, uh, how do we treat our children? How do we manage these technologies? How do we see their benefits and how do we understand where the real threats are? Very well defined. Thank you very much. And, and um... I, as you're talking, you know, my mind's going a mile a minute. Um, recently, as recent as Tuesday, uh, which is two days back, uh, I'm listening to this presentation by a gentleman called, uh, named uh, Kelly Leonard, uh, who started off in Chicago in the improv uh, area and had mentored the likes of Tina Fey and, and many of the Saturday Night Live uh, uh, performers and and. Uh, stars that that came to great success and he does a presentation on the connection between improv uh, and the tools that they learn in improv and actually selling you know uh, to convince a customer and here you are john you know performing arts right uh, a person that that not only talks to the law and the legalities but who has so to speak actually performed you actually immersed yourself uh, and so you know your subject matter extremely well when it comes to entertainment and then the the, the move to privacy law etc which is extremely topical uh, so thank you for positioning that so well um, question four down the line we're going to look at ai as another facet of where we're heading right today today the big deal is privacy with all the laws and we're going to talk about that right now uh, but then we, I do want your opinion on AI. So speaking of the topic of hand, you know, there's GRC, right? Government Regulation and Compliance. And boy, are we known for our TLA, our three-letter acronyms, right? So um, so here we are, right? You, you, we are in, you know, in your current role. Um, you see this. Uh, you've got a blend of both academia and actual uh, commercial and, and industrial application, so to speak. Um I want to talk to you about the current cybersecurity trends um, loosely, and I say this loosely because you are, a, you know, an intellectual law and property law expert. Um, GRC is big. This is in our everyday IT ecosystems. Uh, 
administration after administration in this great country uh, is proud to say that they're driving more, you know, governance, regulation, and compliance. There's NEST, uh, there's zero trust architecture. Uh, we've got 50 states, and every time I click one of those cookies on what you referred to earlier as the webby thing uh, is, you know, we've got laws that say, hey, look, every time you hit accept, uh, you've got to maintain. Some states say you've got to keep all the the user choices. Some states say just as long as you have this little preventative uh, accept cookies, you're good. Uh, and so almost each state has their own laws on privacy. Uh, we've got China and India uh, that are coming through with like 400 page um, documents. You know, uh, and in India's case, as only a member of the Commonwealth can uh, produce, you know, massive documents that'll equivalent, that'll, that's equivalent of their very complex tax code. So this stuff is barreling towards us in the IT industry. Um, what I'd like to know from you, uh, positioning all these things that are going on, for you, uh, you know, in your current role, what are some of the cybersecurity trends that are top of mind for you? So when I think of the model, I always come back to what I think is still in the U.S., the best example, which is the HIPAA-based model, which is separating out the technical administrative and physical uh, tools that we use for cybersecurity and privacy. And of course, there is no difference between cybersecurity and privacy, because if the data that we collect is not protected from intrusion or from misuse within an organization, uh, then the data is not secure, and so privacy is breached. So it's, it's one system. For my work, because I don't spend time working with technologists, my focus is really on the administrative procedures. Um, obviously, we need to have an increased level of technical specification. Um, but as you kind of allude to in your, in your question, right, we can create technical specifications that actually lead to insecurity because they're too difficult to follow they're too obtuse, they're too expensive, and so people avoid them. And so the real starting point for me continues to be administrative uh, procedures and making sure that we have a philosophical model that starts with, you know, we use the term privacy by design, zero trust, that really starts with the notion that data shouldn't be shared unless there is a particular reason to share particular information in a particular use case, and it should be minimized to the greatest extent possible in that use case. Talking about AI as an analogy, uh, the great Woz, Steve Wozniak, uh, a week or two ago, uh, noted that the world would be so very different if privacy were the value rather than distribution when we created the original architecture for the internet. And I was thinking about this uh, earlier today in the context of who are the investors who are building the platforms, right? And so the ARPANET that led to the internet was an academic sharing platform. It was never intended to be what it is today. Uh, the early commercialization was done by publishers, right? It wasn't a communications platform. It was always a distribution platform. Had the banking industry created the internet, it would have been about 
data minimization and customer control rather than distribution. And we'd have a very different cybersecurity world today. So I think that as, as was suggested, that we're at an inflection point because of AI, but we shouldn't just be dealing with the AI inflection point. We also need to be thinking about the underlying architecture of how we use our communications tools. Right. Zoom and other video platforms have moved to end-to-end -end encryption, but we still haven't done that for basic email. Right. There are so many administrative choices that we can make to improve security overall. Um, you know, you had mentioned biometrics and the ability to walk into a room and be known. Right. And so we're seeing companies like Apple gain more and more traction in banking, in virtual worlds, in telecommunications, because there is a tr right, there's a trust with that vendor that's rather unique in the marketplace. And so I when I think about this field, I think of it from an administrative standpoint. And when I'm counseling clients, I think about going back to my earliest days, uh, working uh, under the former vice president of Target at one of my universities. And he's like, it's all about customer care and customer satisfaction. Trust, privacy are core customer care principles. And if companies think about it from that perspective, rather than the perspective of a cost center, you'll end up with a very different kind of architecture as you build out that space. So to me, that's where we need to pivot. Um, and the kind of uh, legal steps that you are describing, uh, the additional disclosures, the GDPR type, click on the cookie policies, none of that is really moving the ball forward because those disclosures don't really change individual behavior. They don't change risk. And so we really need to think about changing the architecture itself. And I think AI, ironically, will push us in that direction because AI is going to make the existing model ever more vulnerable and force change upon us. And anxious as I am to get to AI, let's hold that thought for a moment. But, you know, I'm, again, if I haven't said this before, let me say this loud and clear, completely immersed in this conversation and would like to, you know, to challenge you to, so to speak, on the tenants that you've raised um, in, in a fun way, right? So let's juxtaposition a few things. You talked about, you know, that data should not be shared and you definitely imply both internally and externally. So not only within an organization should the privacy be held sacred and the need to know as the feds refer to it as, or the right data at the right time, at the right place with the right person, as I often say, um, is a basic tenant of cybersecurity. Well said. Uh, was talking about privacy, right? And there, uh, I'm going to see that and raise you another tenant that says, look, we should live open lives, right? So what if everything's open? Uh, you can go to uh, Europe, for example, and say, I need my data to be removed from all social media. And at a hit of, hit of a button, the very same companies uh, that are you know, and I say this in air quotes, misusing data here are able to adhere to much stricter European laws. Our, our, our neighbors in, um, in Canada have much higher standards as well. Um, 
you talk about you know philosophical model and literally john god bless you for saying using the word obtuse when it comes you know to current laws right i mean we're quick uh, to pass legislation uh, and the story that i often tell is about um, uh, the old lady in in Santa Monica. So Santa Monica, a few miles north of Los An- of, of where we are within Los Angeles, is a town that was one of the early adopters of rent control. Um, and so you know the very same landlord that's providing homes for everyone else um, has rented out one of his apartments to the old lady who's got a very limited income and laws come in by the city council and they say, now we're going to have rent control. And so, you know, when the roof starts leaking, the landlord doesn't have enough money and puts a little tarp. And, you know, when the plumbing goes bad, he duct tapes it and all because the rent is controlled and therefore there's not enough room to, uh, or money to do the repairs that are needed. And, you will follow the story along that yeah, over a period of time, this building is dilapidated and falls, um, completely rendering the very lady that they're trying to protect homeless, right? So here's city council in their wisdom putting in rent control laws, um, connect the dots, and there's laws that haven't been thought through thoroughly. Implementation is difficult. It's a very oversimplified concept, but you're right. In in our business, it gets very difficult. Um, if we're going to spend time on laws, it's, it's the system adapting to laws and not the other way around. We've got to make, uh, make these laws easy to adapt, uh, or there'll be a sense of complacence over a period of time. Um, take HIPAA, take high tech, we're seeing this constantly. The idea is build a cadence where it's easy to adopt. Um, the question that I want to raise to you as, as a, you know, 2B, so to speak, is trust. Um, you did say that, uh, did you say CEO or uh, assistant CEO of, uh, of Target that you worked with and who talked about customer trust, right? And so that's, that's a great tenant. Uh, so the very person or the employee where we're talking, who we're talking to about trust, uh, we're also telling them from a cybersecurity point of view. So we're saying, look, trust, create trust. It's a basic tenant for teamwork. It's a basic tenant to engage with your customer. It'll make us go forth and, and multiply, so to speak. And then along come the cybersecurity guys and say, hey, zero trust, right? Um, don't trust anyone. And then this is the very same person we're dealing with. So I'm throwing these random thoughts out to you to get some summary on these various things, the laws that are coming down and how do we manage and address them when they're complex and we have work to do. Uh, Trust being one subset of that where in cybersecurity space, we're saying, oh my gosh, you know what? Have zero trust. This is a terrible world. At the same time, from a customer point of view, it's, uh, it's important. Your thoughts, please. Yeah. So you've raised some very interesting, uh, uh, points, and I just want to respond to a couple. So first, just to take your analogy of the rent control situation into the data sphere, right? If the data that we're collecting is highly valuable and actionable data, then of course, we're going to have a model to use and exploit that data. But as you also identified, we want to have right the fewest people touching it who only have the highest need for it. 
right? So if we're collecting your medical data, I want to make sure that every doctor who needs to see that file has easy access to it. But I don't want that as a customer or as a policy matter sold to insurance companies or sold to uh, commercial enterprises to start marketing to me about a private medical need. So the basic trust model is your doctor is within that sphere. Um, the payment and billing operations triangle that HIPAA uses retains that data, but we don't allow it to go up more generally. In the commercial space, however, what we see over and over again is incredibly sloppy, dangerous data practices. Right? Every customer that I've ever worked with has a data destruction policy. And when it came to the cost of storing old paper files, companies, because of the cost of those boxes in the basement, were pretty good at labeling when a box of unused do uh, documents needed to go to the shredder. They're terrible, however, at getting rid of that digital data. And so, right, lawyers, the American Bar Association just got hit with a cybersecurity breach because an improperly wiped server that was out of, out of service for two years was recently breached. Why it was connected to any system, I don't know, right? And yet, so now hundreds of thousands of lawyers have had their data um, accessed for data that the organization itself had absolutely no business case, right? It was outdated, outmoded data. Most customer data has a shelf life of, say, 90 days at most before the behavioral information becomes stale. The systems don't get taught better by having six months or 12 months of data because the models are just fine in that 30 to 60 day window. And yet that data is retained and as a result of it, the breaches become orders of magnitude more expensive to respond to because the companies have terrible hygiene practices. So we don't, we in fact can save value. We can build better roofs if we have more attention to how uh, current data is being uh, maintained and stored. And I think that's really the critical point, right? At the end of the day, Corporate America has outpaced Europe, it's outpaced the rest of the Western world in terms of its innovation and growth. And we don't want to lose that leadership, but we can do it in a much more efficient way by not being sloppy with our customers. And in fact, the customers today have a lower level of trust for most vendors than they have had in a very long time. And there are a few exceptions to that, and those exceptions should become the norm. Well said. Thank you. Um, when you said, you know, orders of magnitude, the one thing that I thought of was my Apple storage subscription, John. You know, it was 50 cents for a few, whatever, gigs. Now they're quick, you know, we're, we're, we're moving on to terabytes of data, right? And, and families are sharing. So you're right, whether it's the volume of data that we're collecting individually, uh, and then you accumulate this as organizations. Uh, and if this is not addressed on a regular basis, uh, it can get overwhelming when it comes to data duplication and, and cleaning up and privacy. Now, 
moving on to what we should focus on. And, and this question is intentional because we've got CEOs, CISOs, and, and um, uh, you know, various C-level board members listening to these podcasts uh, to help form some kind of direction for their organizations. And um, we're getting this in terms of a fire hose, in terms of how to behave, um, you know, whether it comes to privacy or, or cybersecurity or basic, the term fiduciary relationship when it comes to members of the board, right? Where earlier, hey, watch the money. Today, it's watch the cybersecurity, right? Uh, the SEC is specifically saying that board members have to address cybersecurity. Um, and then the, the government is asking for a certain compliance and regulation and, and adoption when it comes to NEST. Uh, people are quick to say, uh, hey, I want privacy. I want my data to be protected. Um, and one quick and simple solution is, you know, we'll give you a little uh, RFID chip that you can probably uh, uh, embed in your wrist and you can just go swipe that at the doctor and they'll see all your information. And when you walk away, poof, it's gone, right? There is a level of cyber. And uh, I, I'm toying with these with these ideas. And then people would be the same people that are yelling from the tops of the roof of the roof saying look i want privacy and i want to keep my data sacred will say no 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 i don't want my body is my temple i don't want anything in here right and so we're constantly innovating we're constantly pushing the limits in terms of finding a solution across this gamut across this ecosystem what should we focus on in the current state from your point of view so thinking about the boardroom, um, I think it's really important to emphasize that reducing risk is, if not a revenue center, certainly it is a way of reducing cost. Cyber insurance, if it's available at all for companies today, has become extraordinarily expensive. Um, certain kinds of malware attacks will result in companies not being able to restart. And if they do restart, they're incredibly disruptive to operations, to customer relations. So it's no longer that cybersecurity or privacy are optional, right? They are essential core functions of an organization in the same way that we wouldn't open a retail store without putting a lock on the front door um, or having right product control from shoplifting um, activities, right? We know that this is essential. And that means starting with the CEO and the entire board, this has to be systematic. Now, there's a problem I thought you were going to allude to with the consumer, which is the consumer will say, I want privacy, I want privacy, and then give it up for a 50 cent loyalty gift card. And <laughs> that is very interesting at the local mall for, for, for a chance to win the Ferrari, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so we, we know that there is a split in people's minds between what privacy means in the abstract and what it means to give up information. To me, the real central uh, model that we need to move to is a harm avoidance model, right? People don't mind having advertisement that's slightly better attuned to their interests, but they find it really creepy if it responds to the website they went to five minutes before. And companies have become nuanced 
at identifying how much you can personalize information before it becomes creepy to the consumer and violates that level of trust and respect. And you call this a what avoidance model? A risk. It's really a risk avoidance risk model. Avoidance. Okay. Yeah, it's really a risk avoidance model. Um, but what it, what it requires from the board level is to say, at what point does it no longer benefit us to have and use this information, right? What is the margin, and again, a little economics, what's the marginal utility versus the risk cost? And I don't think companies are doing a very good job of doing economic modeling for the risks associated with data misuse, um, with the threats in the way that they do do modeling for physical threats and personnel issues. By moving to that model, by thinking of this as a marginal use case, companies will reduce the amount of data that they're collecting while becoming more efficient with the data that they do have. And as a result of that combination, those companies that are sophisticated in the thinking about how to maximize value and relationships will outperform those companies that are still in the collect everything and see what we end up at the end of the day uh, model. And very interesting. The, the, the question I have for you, and, and you've, you've alluded to a basic tenant when it comes to decision making, whether it's in the boardroom or whether it's to pick between you know vanilla and chocolate chip, right? Uh, it's measure the upside and the downside. And, and that's a simple tenant for life's decisions. It's something that I talk about often. Uh, I was recently talking to, in fact, as recent as Tuesday, uh, one of the C-levels at, at Honeywell on a cybersecurity panel, and he alluded to the very same thing when it comes to a cybersecurity posture for that Fortune 500 company. It's like, look, we constantly have to measure what are we exposing ourselves to in, 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 in the case of your example, in terms of holding on to this data versus letting it go poof. He brought up an important point. There are things that they don't know that they don't know. Sure. Uh, and this is what keeps organizations like ours in business. Uh, and it keeps you prolific as an author, right? Because you're constantly saying, look, learn. Here, here are the publications. Talk to that. How should the decision makers arm themselves with knowledge to be able to take smarter decisions on, on the upside versus the downside measurement? I really think that the unknown unknowns is an overstated risk. And instead, the real risk is the site, right? We haven't talked about behavioral economics. The real threat in the boardroom is FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. And so corporate boards tend to hoard opportunities. They tend to over-respond because they think that someone else will get there first. So and true. that is the real driver, not this Iraq war notion that there are the things that we know, the things that we don't know, and the things we don't know that we don't know. Right. I would, again, we're going to pivot eventually to AI. AI falls into that third category, right? The, the, the permutations of this inflection point are creating a host of unknowable unknowns as we shift into a new model. Privacy and cybersecurity we know the threats are going to continue. We know that every data breach is more expensive than the last. 
the reason that 50 states are, and uh, four territories are piling on with new regulation is it increases the cost of doing nothing. And so even though the laws themselves may not be effective, they are squeezing corporate decision makers to realize that the cost of non-compliance has simply become too high. And you know, to use an old analogy, it's time for the frog to get out of the boiling pot. And so that's why we're seeing this regulatory model that's not particularly efficient, but it's very scary. And the, ver- the fear that it's creating is slowly moving corporate decision-making. It's not a great model at all, um, but it's, it's the model we have. Um, I'm going to burst a bubble for you, John, but I'm reading this book right now called The One Thing. And, and he actually says, uh, and I am digressing here, he says, look, if, a, if you try to boil a frog slowly, it will jump out. It's not true that. <laughs> so he, he, he ruined that one for me. However, uh, you know, we could talk for an hour on behavioral economics. I mean, talk about human behavior. Now, there's an oxymoron. Talk about behavior and the dollar, right? I mean, you put those two together and that's a conversation we could have for a couple of hours in itself. So point well taken on, on FOMO and ultimately the people taking decision in the boardroom are two things, human. And so they want to hold and keep everything, you know, like my uh, post-recession great-grandmother once didn't want to get rid of even, you know, a piece of packing tape or a ribbon. Um, and the economics behind, economic engine behind the organizations that they're responsible for. So matters of deep thought. I am excited to talk about the future. Um, I've always said that magical things are going to happen at the interaction of human behavior, you know, human intelligence, artificial intelligence, and big data. You alluded to this earlier in our conversations when you talked about these orders of magnitude change. Um, laws like HIPAA changed into high tech. Um, now we've got to walk into a doctor's office and sign our name, and they promptly pull it off. You know, God forbid anyone knows that we're in there for a colonoscopy or whatever else we're in there for. AI is is changing things. And, you know, this is orders of magnitude change within orders of magnitude change. I mean, you know, the internet and you can walk into a room and ask for music and uh, millennials are saying we no longer want to have to remember 20 character passwords. Um, very exciting times. So where do you see us heading? What's this future of cybersecurity? This is the dream with us section of the conversation. Unfortunately, I'm a bit of a pessimist. Um, I think that the dark times are going to come before the good times. Um, The long-term potential for AI to solve major world problems is, is true and valid. I think we're starting to see tremendous potential in uh, the pharmaceutical industry, in uh, solar power, nuclear fusion, right? So there are some very long-term benefits that this technology is going to have for us. Unfortunately, I do think that in the next five years, the disruption is going to be more negative than positive, right? We're already seeing that 
simple chat, you know, I say simple chat GPT three and four, and of course they're nothing close to simple, but we've already accommodated them into our culture. And unfortunately, the earliest adopters are phishing exploit professionals who are getting rid of their bad spelling and bad, poor syntax and making much more sophisticated phishing exploits than they could two months ago. We're seeing voice duplication attacks uh, that are incredibly sophisticated. Uh, we're seeing the use of these technologies for bot attacks uh, that are magnifying the problems that we have. And so from a cybersecurity standpoint, the next 24 to 36 months are going to be a, a game of catch up because the ability to harness these tools to defend institutions is going to take a lot longer to vet. It's going to take a lot longer to put the appropriate guardrails onto these systems. And meanwhile, the bad actors who have no such limitations are going to town with the misuse of these tools. I do think eventually we'll get out of that phase and we'll think about retraining the workforces. We'll think about different ways of educating our youth so that critical thinking rather than rote memorization becomes the core of education. Um, but those are long-term needs. And in the short term, uh, the explosion of content from generative AI is going to lead to a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of harm. Thank you. I am just in awe of um, the potential of AI. And yes, you know, the bad guys are one step behind. It's exploitation, it's human nature, it's let, let's use the same tools. And we've got to constantly remember that. A quick anecdote, I am a finance major and uh, pride myself on my prowess with Excel. Um, sometimes, you know, late in the afternoon, the brain power isn't all there. And so rather than, you know, try my skills at trying to get things into one little cell with complex formulas, I'll do it in about three iterations. I just realized that, you know, just talking to ChatGPT, uh, ChatGPT can brilliantly generate an Excel complex formula and have me cut and paste it into Excel. So I'm enjoying that with my afternoon cup of tea for the moment. So please allow me that uh, that luxury. Um, uh, but if, if I may, please. I think what, what you have identified is one of the great potential and risks of generative AI. As an expert who understands what that cell should be, being able to have a shortcut to write it out, to look at it and say, this is what I was looking for and paste it in is fantastic. I love using it for pre-writing uh, short material that I need. Um, because I know what I'm looking for. I know when I read the draft exactly how I want to edit it. But I look at novices in the same space, and they don't understand how to make those edits. And as a result, it's a great tool for experts, but it's being sold as a tool for novices. And that's the worst possible use of the, uh, of the tool. And so you know, it, yes. it, that's my concern is that Absolutely. it's not being put in the right hands at the right, right time. Again, a basic life tenant, right? Everything in moderation, uh, including AI. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, everything in moderation, including moderation, John. That's another. That's a topic for another uh, <laughs> another podcast. Um, something tells me, and I'm willing to put good money on this, that your next book will have something to do with parenting in a world of uh, AI and why kids are getting their homework done in about uh, ten nanoseconds on the drive home. Right. Well, <laughs> that would be that would be a fun read. Um, to close out this this very engaging conversation. Uh, I promise that we'll bookend you, the person, right? So I'd like to talk to you about or hear from you about your relationships, you know, your human influences on your career, uh, your family, your mantra, and your core values. Oh, that's a very interesting and hard to answer question. Um, you know, I start with my family. I've been very fortunate. Um, you know, as I work as a faculty member, um, it gives, you know, a lot of opportunity to be at home with my kids. When I wrote my first book, um, my writing style was always to put the kids to sleep first and then go back into the den uh, to finish my book projects. They're now adult professionals. Uh, my children are adults living on their own very successfully, uh, which is uh, you know just a pride for me. I think where I get my greatest uh, uh, satisfaction uh, watching my children having grown, quite frankly, is my students. Uh, and it is just, it is wonderful to have these kind of conversations. Um, I'm teaching a seminar at the moment. I talk to my students about their exploration of these topics. Um, and I see the growth in these young adult learners. I see their professional development. I see them moving into their first jobs and into their first careers. And watching their success and understanding that the training, that the critical thinking skills, that the world that these topics open for them um, is changing their careers and their thinking, and in some cases, their lives. Um, teaching is an incredibly rewarding place to be. And so I'm just, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do. Um, and then I get to uh, speak on occasion with cutting edge companies who are showing me, you know, the, the bleeding edge of the world. So you can't have a better balance than that. John Guerin, thank you so much for, for spending time with us and allowing us into your very exciting and intellectually stimulating world, you know, whether it's bringing up kids or uh, living this, this intellectual life. There's no doubt that that you're doing great and thank you for educating us and making us more aware and, and smarter. We appreciate uh, you being here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on this episode of Secure IT as we continue the cybersecurity discussion with our vendors, customers, end users, employees, uh, professors and intellectuals in this case, and, and helping us to learn from their insights, knowledge and experiences. Make sure to follow us from wherever uh, your podcasts are pervade. And please do not forget to direct message me with your feedback, your questions, your kudos. Thank you very much and see you next month.